If you have been around the Bible, own a Bible, read the Bible, these are probably the clean pages in your Bible, the Minor Prophets. So we're going to be in Micah this morning. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, the text I'm going to, I'm going to preach from is, is there in the bulletin. I'm going to, I don't know that I'll do this every time. I'm going to draw from the beginning of the book and then kind of the middle and then the very end. Micah, we're going to begin at the, begin, uh, at the beginning of the book, begin at the beginning. Uh, I've been told, I, I, I think this is right, that for, for a pretty good chunk of history, not only in Europe but even in the United States, that at least in English-speaking areas, that if a family only owned two books, the two books they probably owned were a Bible and Pilgrim's Progress. Now, you may or may not have ever heard of that book. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress, written in the 1600s by a guy named John Bunyan, and it's an allegory of the Christian life. There's this main character, Pilgrim, who goes on this long trip, and it's, it's, it's a depiction of the, the Christian's experience. The way that story really begins is with Pilgrim at the very beginning in crisis because he's come across this, this account about his own town, his own city, and the account says the city is going to be judged and he doesn't know what to do. And this, this other character comes along named Evangelist and he sees Pilgrim in crisis and, and he's asking him, why are you in crisis? He says, because I, I don't know what to do. Now, just even me saying that, like speaking in terms of the Christian life, in terms of somebody sensing a coming judgment and not, not knowing what to do and being in crisis about it, you might think, I, that's not how I like to think about the Christian life. And that may be the case, but here's what you need to understand. Over and over and over, for 2,000 years, when you read the, about the lives of Christians, that question comes up over and over and over. That when God starts to work in someone's heart, usually it doesn't begin with, man, God is great and everything's great. Where it begins is, I am in crisis. There's a great traumatic judgment coming that no one will escape. What will I do about it? And then that's when God bursts in. Really, that's the beginning of him bursting in. But then he gives the good news. And people are transformed. Men and women are transformed. Over and over and over you hear that account of what happened on people's insides. Um, We're in the Minor Prophets. There's been a lot of talk about judgment. And next week's going to be worse. Because we'll get to Nahum. But we're in Micah. And uh, several commentators said, you know, Micah talks about judgment. And Micah talks about good news. And something that I didn't realize, because I just hadn't done much study on Micah, this book never says this. This is from another book of the Bible. But one of the few good kings in the history of God's people, a guy named Hezekiah, there really was a guy named Hezekiah, and he really was a good king, that he, he made these sweeping reforms among God's people, religious reforms, cultural reforms. He said he was very impacted by the ministry of Micah. And so we need to give him our attention. And even if we didn't know that, the reason that we're doing this is because when Jesus came along, he said, I'm fulfilling the prophets. Then the apostles, when they went out and they spread the good news, they would point back to what we call the Old Testament prophets and say, what I'm saying to you was embedded in there. It was harder to see. But I'm telling you the fulfillment of what's uh, what's in Isaiah and Daniel and Micah. 
Uh, Micah, he ministered in the 700s B.C. That's when a lot of, a lot of these books were written. There's a lot of uh, idolatry going on among God's people. There's a lot of financial inequity among God's people. There are haves and have-nots, and there aren't supposed to be. Uh, Micah comes from a little rural town southwest of Jerusalem, and this is going to be important later. His name, Micah, means, Who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord? Let's start in chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under Him, and the valleys will split open, like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Then in chapter 6, verse 6, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Chapter 7, verse 18. This is the final words of Micah. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this... In Christ's name, amen. Um, so an article just this past week seemed to get posted a lot, shared a lot, and um, is on Slate.com. The name of the article is, Kids of Helicopter Parents Are Sputtering Out. And uh, this term, helicopter parent, really got ensconced in our language about 10 years ago. Let me just give you a few excerpts. None of my excerpts were on the same page, so I've got all this paper up here. In 2013, in a 2013 survey of college counseling center directors, 95% said the number of students with significant psychological problems is a growing concern on their campus. 95% of university counselors said people, not just with a bump here and there, significant psychological problems is going up. Here's a snapshot. 84% um, in the last 12 months of students felt overwhelmed by clinical standards, not just, oh, I'm busy today. 
60% describe themselves as sad. 57% describe themselves as lonely. 51% felt overwhelming anxiety. 8% seriously considered suicide. Now, the writer of this article goes on to say this. She says, you're right to be thinking, yes, but do we know whether overparenting causes this rise in mental health problems? Because it seems to be worse among the haves. Upper echelon universities, you know, real hard track, uh, selective schools, that, that's where these counseling centers say it seems to be the worst. And so the writer appropriately says, all right, I'm writing this article about helicopter parents overparenting does that mean overparenting causes what we're seeing on the campus? And she says, the answer is that we don't have studies proving causation, but a number of recent studies show correlation. Now, one last part. She says, quote, when parents have tended to do the stuff of life for kids, the waking up, the transporting, the reminding about deadlines and obligations, the bill paying, the question asking, the decision making, the responsibility taking, the talking to strangers, the confronting of authorities. Kids may be in for quite a shock when parents turn them loose in the world of college or work. They will experience setbacks which will feel to them like failure. Lurking beneath the problem of whatever thing needs to be handled is the student's inability to differentiate the self from the parent. And there was an article that came out about four years ago in Atlantic Monthly called How to Land Your Kid in Therapy, and it says the exact same thing. Different figures, different sets of research. It says that that the parent who absolutely does everything and monitors everything and controls everything for the child, they're raising messed up kids. They're raising sad children who don't know what to do when they get out in the real world. How do you know if you've gone from being an attentive parent to a helicopter parent? Because I think, you know, any parent wants to be an attentive parent. How do you know when you've hit helicopterdom? And one of the telltale signs is a helicopter parent will neutralize consequences for his or her child. So if, if the golden child makes a mistake, the helicopter parent, they, they handle it, they neutralize it, they pay, they pay the charge, they talk to someone, they talk to an authority, what, They handle it so that the child doesn't feel consequences. And we're just seeing more and more evidence that this is not love. It's not loving. And the irony is that throughout Scripture, you have God telling His people that I love you. And increasingly, as you get into the Bible, He doesn't just say, I love you. He describes Himself as the Father of His people. And here's an amazing thing about God is that as He loves His people, the way He describes His love is better than anything we could have made up. Like We, we couldn't have scripted what He says He feels for us and will do for us. And, not but, and He will let us experience consequences. And that's really, I think, it, we're, I think we're in a cultural moment where that may be harder to get than it's ever been before, that God's love and painful consequences can actually coexist in someone's life. And that's all through the Bible, that God's love and painful consequences can coexist. In fact, the consequences might be a tough, severe manifestation of His love and commitment, because consequences are not apathy. Um, 
what I want to look at in this passage, I, each of these little batches is going to be a point, okay? The sermon has three points. This has never been done before in church history. Uh, here's, here's how I want to look at this. I, I, want to, I want to look at it in terms of three things. Let, let's call it the dilemma, the question, and the surprise. So I'm, 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 I'm bookending it and drawing one place in the middle. So the, the dilemma, the question, and the surprise. What's the dilemma? The dilemma, and a lot of the prophets sound this way, is that God has seen his people. God has seen what we're doing, they're doing, and he's coming. Listen to the language again. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention. And that's a really great translation because the Hebrew is intensive there. This is not a teacher trying to yell over the students, go, okay, guys, guys, let's settle down. This is the head of the school coming over the PA system saying, if everyone will stop what they're doing immediately and observe a moment of silence for what I'm about to tell you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. So this is not just directed to Israel or Judah. God's saying, I want the whole earth to hear what I'm about to say. Now, what is he going to say? Verse 3, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And this is, this is something you see over and over in the Bible. On the one hand, God is everywhere. But on the other hand, his felt, experienced presence can be localized. God is going to, he's still everywhere, but in this special way, leave his home, his place, the heavenly temple. And it says, this is an interesting detail, not just come to Israel. He says, he's going to come to the high places. Now, why is that interesting? The high places were places that in Israel and Judah in this darker time have become places of idolatry. They become places of idol worship. Uh, during times of reform in Israel, it would, it would say, like one of these good kings like Hezekiah, it would say, the high places were removed up in the hills, up in the mountains. God says, I'm coming from heaven and do you know where I'm going to go? I'm going to walk through the high places. If you were an Israelite or a Judean and you were dabbling in idol worship and still kind of going to the temple and you heard that Yahweh was about to walk the high places, that should terrify you to expose the secrets. What's it going to be like when he shows up? Verse 4, And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a, a steep place. Now, that sounds like, I don't know what to call it, it sounds like volcano language or meteor hit the earth language, cataclysmic language. What it seems to be in the context is the language of invasion. That, that God is stating as a consequence of your overt, long-term, stiff-necked, stubborn rebellion, you're going to be invaded. Uh, in the northern kingdom, Israel, Samaria, first it would be Assyria. That would happen pretty close to this prophecy, we think. And then later in the southern kingdom, Judah, Jerusalem, it would be invaded by Babylon. And it was awful. Awful, awful, awful. 
why would God do that? This goes back to the thing of, okay, you say in the Bible you love us. You say in the Bible you protect us and you're for us. Why would you let an awful thing happen? And I'll tell you, what I'm about to say to you can be very helpful in your own Bible reading, especially in the Old Testament because it's hard, is to understand this thing called the covenant. The covenant. That God doesn't just say, hey, I like you and I want you to like me. He binds himself to his people. And the, the nature of the binding, the bond, is the covenant. And in a covenant, you've got two parties, life and death, blood bond, and there are terms. And the covenant between God and his people is the law that reflects his character. And not just once, but twice, after he gives the law of God to his people. This is an exodus... And the longer version is in Deuteronomy. He says, if you keep my covenant, here are the blessings that are going to flow out to you. However, if you break the terms of the covenant, these will be the consequences. He uses the term curses. Now, listen to what one of the particulars is. This is in Deuteronomy 28. My people, if you worship idols, if you break these commands... If you neglect your fellow Israelite who's poor, here's what will happen. Quote, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. That, that could be a description of Assyria and Babylon. Consequences. Now, I said it earlier, but I'm going to say it again. It, it may be that this is harder for us culturally to get than just about anyone who's ever lived. The love of God, the fierce, committed, tenacious love of God and painful consequences are not enemies. They can coexist. And I'll give you a famous example from sort of a famous Bible story. It's a sad Bible story. Many of you know the account of King David. When God had blessed him, and he's kind of the golden king, and then he commits adultery and is responsible for murdering the husband of the woman, Bathsheba, that he committed adultery with. And he hides it, and he doesn't deal with it. And God sends him a prophet to confront him. And at first, there's pushback, and then it breaks him. Now, think about this. When it breaks him, he says, I've sinned against the Lord. And the prophet Nathan says two things to him. The Lord has already taken away your guilt. And the child's going to die. Now just put those together. But look at the juxtaposition. God still loves you. And by the way, even after David did that, and he did some other bad stuff too, When God referred back to him, he still said, he's a man after my own heart. He never said, I don't love him anymore. I love David. He was a man after my own heart. I've already taken away your guilt for adultery and murder and covering this up. And you impregnated this woman. Your child, her child, will die. Put there together. I mean, those are extremely stark examples 
there's so many just everyday, plain vanilla, mundane manifestations of this. Think about as New Testament believers. Think about when we neglect our souls, and we could, well, we could tell our, all tell our stories when we're just so busy, you know, because, because no one else is busy. And no other human beings who've walked the face of the earth have ever been this busy, ever. We're so busy that prayer begins to fall by the wayside and worship falls by the wayside. Public worship, private worship. Um, a life of prayer falls by the wayside. The Bible falls by the wayside. And then we look up and we feel cold and distant with God and with other Christians and even the local church. And how, how do we usually process that? God, why do I feel this way? I thought you were love. He is love. Like that's why He wants us to meditate on Him and His Word so that we always remember and not just not, like experience and feel that He is love and He is great and He is our Savior and He is with us. But you know what? When we neglect those ways that He works in our lives, there are consequences. And us being us, we sort of want to look at Him and go, this is your fault. And you know what? It's not. It's our fault. And that's not at odds with His love. That is juxtaposed to His love. The dilemma is God is coming and there are consequences for what God's people have been doing. So what's the question? And I recently heard Tim Keller make this statement. He's pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York, very gifted communicator and writer. He said that it's often the case that we come to the Bible and we think that the Bible is a book that is going to answer our questions. And what happens when you interact with it is you realize that we weren't even asking the right questions. And I've seen this in my own life. That I didn't even know the right question to ask. That plays out in this passage. I, I want you to see this. Look, look at the second batch there, starting chapter 6, verse 6. Okay, there's this dilemma. Judgment's coming. God is coming. He knows our secrets. So, verse 6, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What question is the speaker saying? Judgment's coming. I'm a sinner. God knows it. How do I leverage this? What do I have to leverage? And verses 6 and 7 aren't just a snapshot of biblical history, that is a window into world religions. Verses 6 and 7 is the human heart because it's the, hu- the human heart when it sees that I'm in trouble, I'm going to stand before God or God is coming. Is ha- it's religion. It's religiosity. What do I give? What check do I... Well, no one does checks anymore. You know, what, what, what do I donate? How do I volunteer? What religious activity do I up? Prayer, scripture, meditation, whatever. What do I do to get leverage? That is not even the right question. That's man's question. God says this. That's, here's the question you should be asking. 
this whole time, what have I required of you? There's all kinds of ways he could have answered that. He could have said, don't worship idols. But look at what he says. If the question is, what do I require, verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice. You talk about a massive biblical motif in the law and in the prophets. It's to do justice. And that's something much bigger than being nice. Being a nice southerner or being a nice church person. To do justice is to see where there is injustice and actively to move toward it and step in and act. To do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, as your teacher used to say, if you've got your thinking cap on right now, I hope there's a question in your mind. That sounds like God is saying, do good things and you'll be okay. And if that's the case, I hope that's jarring to you because something that like we're saying all the time in here is you cannot make yourself right with God by doing good things. We can't make ourselves clean or acceptable to God by doing good things and just obeying Him better. And God is saying, well, you know, what is it I require of you? Do justice, love kindness, love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Is God saying save yourself with your works? Uh, I'm going to vote no. Think about this. Think, Think about the parallel between this passage and a conversation in the Gospels where a really sharp young guy could be one of us, comes to Jesus, gets on his knees before Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as I've said before, that's what a pastor would call a pretty great opportunity for ministry. You know, this is not like I'm, I'm crowbarring someone to listen to me. This is like I'm on my knees asking, what do I do? And Jesus says, well, why do you call me good? No one's good except God. But, but in answer to your question, you know the commandments, and he lists off about six commandments, and he says, well, just, just do those and you'll live. And he just got through saying, no one's good. Do you know what the guy's response was? All these I've kept since I was a boy. No one's good except God and me. And it says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him and he said, one thing you lack, just sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And the guy went away sad. He's rich, and Jesus doesn't run after him. Now think about that conversation. Did Jesus just tell him, just obey and do good things, and you'll go to heaven? This is important. The needy in Scripture are not so much a resume builder as they are a gauge. Does that make sense? In Scripture, the needy are not so much a resume builder as they are a gauge. And again, this is all through the Bible. No one can earn their way to heaven by feeding the poor or tutoring a kid 
or working with this under-resourced group or going to a poor nation. No one can earn their way by doing any of those things. However, the absence of those things tells a story. The gauge indicates something. What does the gauge indicate? If you believe that just at, at a baseline level you're good, then what you also believe is that you don't need much mercy. And so what will happen in one's life is you'll extend very little of it where it's complicated and expensive personally. But where you have experienced that I am so messed up, I'm so much more rebellious than I ever thought I was. Let me use biblical words. I am so much more evil than I thought I was. And God has given me great mercy that that manifests itself, not just with people I already like, friends, family, but with people not like me. This child, this woman, this man, this other country, this part of town where I don't naturally know people. It it shows itself. It doesn't save anyone. It's a gauge. It's so much a gauge that Jesus himself said, at the end, when I sit on the great throne and all humanity is in front of me, all humanity will be divided. All, that's unbelievable. All humanity will be divided. And to those on my right, I'll say, you fed me. You clothed me. You visited me in prison. And he'll say, when did we do that? When you did it for the least of these. And to those who receive judgment, he'll say, you did not feed me. You did not clothe me. You did not visit me in prison. When did we not do that? When you did not do it for the least of these. And the gauge that Christ Jesus uses is justice and mercy. So what's the surprise? Here's the surprise. Um, You'd think that, wow, if he's coming, and if that's the gauge, run. And actually that would be true. It's just go the, the, the opposite direction you probably thought I meant by that. The surprise is, instead of running from the judge, (laughs) again, this is is the Bible. Instead of running from the judge, run to him. Here's the end of this book. I mean, think about the bookends of Micah. God is coming and the earth will melt. And then here's the end. Same God. Who is a God like you? Did you catch that that's like Micah's name? Micah, who is like the Lord. The end of the book. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. Uh, Think about this, and then I'm done. The gospel, the good news, is both objective and subjective. It's objective, in in other words, it is on the one hand facts. It's facts that are true and real and life-giving, whether we feel it or not whether it feels real today or not. And it is subjective. It has the power to affect our feelings and to penetrate our experience in our real life. Look at how both of those are at the end of the book. Where's the objective? 
Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? God can take away our guilt. God can take away our guilt for our neglect of the poor and not doing justice. But I've quoted this before. You can know that and it not go in. You can know it and be saved and it not affect you. A friend of mine said his concern sometimes for his children is that, he said, it's almost like I feel like in our lives together, I'm driving, you know, I'm driving the Suburban and my children are in the back and I'm going, okay, does everybody believe in Jesus? Yes. Does everybody believe that you have to believe in Him to have eternal life? Yes. What did Jesus do for us? He died on the cross. No. I state your name. I state your name. Just, everyone's on autopilot. They know the right information, but it's not something that's gone into the experience. And you know, we can't make, we can't do that for each other. But listen to how it's not just the language of yes, he can take your sin away objectively, but it's something to be experienced. Second part of verse 18, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. In a little detail here, the word that's used there, steadfast love, in Hebrew, chesed, in the passage above that where it says, do justice and love kindness, it's the same word, love chesed. Why would I love chesed? Because I got it from him when I shouldn't have. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. I mean, so many of us, this is not everyone, so many people in this room come from church backgrounds. And if I ask you, can God take away our sin? You say, yes, God can take away our our sin. But have you ever experienced Him trampling on your sin? Like, here's my apathy about the poor and here's my apathy about prayer and here are my lusts and to really believe that God went to, to, if I can put it this way to hear him throw it in the depths of the ocean and it go glunk that's what changes us when that happens we can do justice and love mercy and really walk humbly with our God. Have you done that? Have you ever seen that, you know what, the passage said, gosh, what kind of leverage can I do? Could I give my firstborn? We can't do that. God gave His firstborn to throw those sins in the ocean, to trample them underfoot, to do a Passover over our sins and give us His mercy. Run to the Lord. Maybe for you it's to do that the first time, but maybe for you it's to do it the 3,012th time. To experience the good news in a way that actually can not only transform my just mood, experience, relationships, but like to put me into parts of Greenville I've never gone before. To sit with a child that I normally would not have sat with. Not to pad my resume, but because 
I love kindness. I love mercy because I, I received it. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, for this, your word, thank you, thank you. And I can't make myself experience or feel these things. I cannot make any of us do that. None of us can do that for one another. Lord God, would you cause us not only to know the truth of the gospel, but to be impacted inside and to experience you trampling on our sin and throwing it in the depths of the ocean and showing love day after day after day and never stopping. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.